Let's bow again. Father, thank you so much for your son Jesus who died for our sins. Thank you so much that through his blood we have forgiveness of sins. And Father, thank you so much for this time we can have in your word, and I pray you'd use it greatly. You would build us up. You would make us more like your son Jesus, and that we would walk away today praising you and giving you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for those of you here today who have truly placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and received the forgiveness of sins, you probably already know from experience that uh, we live in a time in which we have the sufferings first for the glories to follow. We are following in the footsteps of our Lord, not to bring redemption, but in His, because of his redemption, uh, we are in him and we are his people now living a life on this world in which there is suffering. Now we know there's suffering for Christ, no doubt about that, but there's suffering for other things too, physical, whatever it might be. And some of you might be suffering, and some of you might be discouraged. You know, it can get discouraging at times when we fail in the faith. We want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to do the right thing, and we trip up and we fail. Uh, we want to obey him, we want to be more like him, and we fail. And we need to be encouraged at times. And today, as we continue our break before we start our new series, I wanted to share a passage that I hope will be an encouragement uh, for us. Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, and we're looking at verses 3 to 8. And we're going to see that uh, God wants us to be encouraged, that he will complete the work that he has begun in us. Now, as we look at the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul is the author. He is identified very clearly here as the author. And he is writing to believers in Philippi. And he is writing while imprisoned. And we see this throughout the book, that he is, uh, mentions this uh, three times in chapter 1 alone. Now, Acts 28 reveals that Paul was under house arrest in Rome for three years. And most likely, between 61 to 60, 60 to 63, possibly, uh, Paul refers to his chains, and it is most likely this imprisonment that he is speaking of. He's chained 24-7 to a Roman guard, a Praetorian guard, one of Caesar's household. Now with this, this is one of his four prison epistles. We have Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, Philemon, and most likely written around 62 A.D. Now in Acts chapter 16, we have the amazing description of the founding of the Philippian church. Just about 10 years after Pentecost, uh, excuse me, about 10 years earlier this time, but 20 years after Pentecost, we have in Acts 16, Paul and Silas and Timothy were on uh, the missionary journey. We call it the second missionary journey, Paul's second missionary journey. And having come from the east, they were kept from going south to Asia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak a word in Asia. And they were not allowed to go north to Turkey, and they were trying to get to Bithynia. And the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And God ultimately led them west, and passing through Mysia, they came to Troas, where Luke joined them. Now in Troas, as they were waiting, Paul received his marching orders in a vision from the Lord uh, in Acts 16, verses 9 to 10. They were to go to Macedonia and preach the gospel. So Paul and his companions, in obedience, crossed uh, the Aegean Sea and went on to Philippi. And remember, uh, from Acts 16, we have the accounts of the first converts uh, in uh, Philippi. 
Acts 16. Let's take a look there. Acts 16. First of all, we see uh, God opening the heart of Lydia to respond in her household. Acts 16.13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we were supposing there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And so we have Lydia and her household being saved. And then we know that the Apostle Paul, uh, after he casts out a demon and a slave girl, he is beaten and thrown into a Philippian jail with Silas. And we know from the true story from Acts 16, uh, they were singing hymns and praising God. And what happened? Take a look again, Acts 16, verse 23. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to, to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer had become roused roused out of his sleep and had seen the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for the lights and rushed in, and and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour, took them the very hour of the night, and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, and all he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. This is tremendous. This is the starting of the Philippian church. These are uh, the people he is writing to. At least this is the foundation of it. These are the Philippian believers. The Apostle Paul, having shared this, we have this foundation, this church. And we know that Paul was very close to the Philippians. They were the only church we see later on in chapter 4 that supported him when he went to Thessalonica. They loved Paul and they supported the Apostle Paul in the ministry. They were co-sharers, as we'll see later on in the gospel, having supported Paul in this. And as you look at this letter of Philippians, you realize this letter is about Christ. Uh, He's mentioned no less than 37 times directly. In chapter 1, we see to live is Christ. He is our life. Chapter 2, he's our perfect example of obedient humility who took on human flesh and died for us in obedience to the Father's will. He is the suffering servant. He is Lord of all, and every knee will bow unto him. In chapter 3, we see he's our focus. He's everything, and gaining and knowing him and becoming like him is everything. And this is what we press forward to. In chapter 4, he's the one we stand firm in. 
He is our peace. He, or he, he brings about peace in our hearts and minds when we focus on him in the context of prayer and supplication. And it is in him alone that we can do all things through him who strengthens us. And lastly, he is the one through whom God will supply all our needs. It is in and through Christ Jesus. He is our strength and our supply. And so this letter is about Christ, and this letter gives us wonderful truth we need to know about so great a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we begin, after Paul's initial greeting to the Philippians, we come into his first statement, which we're going to look at today. Look at verse 3, chapter 1 of Philippians. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how long, how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So what you're going to see is that the Apostle Paul encourages us, first of all, by revealing through his thankfulness that these are true believers. These are true believers. They are those who have truly come to faith, and therefore they are those in which he understands God will perform and accomplish and complete that work. He'll do it all the way up to the day of Christ Jesus and complete that work. It should be an encouragement. Because as I shared before, if you are uh, a follower of Jesus Christ, there's going to be suffering. And now some would say this letter was just to address some bickering between two women, which is not true. There is, there's an issue in chapter 4, and Paul addresses that. But later on, we see that this is focused on our high calling in Jesus Christ in the midst of suffering. Look, look at chapter 1, verse 29. For it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. The reality is if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, our experience in Christ is the same as other believers. We know that when we suffer, there are other believers that are suffering around the world. First Peter chapter 5. We know that as we struggle to obey the Lord, we see that we know that other believers are too. It's the good fight of faith. And so Paul is going to, or God through, through Paul, inspired by the Spirit, is going to encourage these, these believers. So notice he has very fond memories of the Philippians that brings him to thankfulness. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Think about those memories, remembering maybe uh, Lydia and them and coming to faith and, and providing for him and, and inviting him to the household, the jailer and his, his household uh, uh, cleaning, cleaning the wounds and then bringing them in and helping them out after being saved. A total change, a total change. He says, I thank my God in remembrance of you. Uh, and he says, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. There, this must be from the south there, you all. See that? It says there, prayer for you all. So Paul's in chains. He is sitting and imprisoned in a Roman prison, uh, most likely chained to a centurion. And he is saying his remembrance of these Philippians brings him to thank God. If you think about it, think about people the Lord has allowed you to minister with and minister to. 
when you see and think about them in their real relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, truly saved, it brings us to thankfulness. It brings us to joy, as we'll see before the Lord. You see, Paul had thankfulness, and his thankfulness was directed towards God. I thank my God. I thank my God. And we see all throughout Paul's letters, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 1, Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, Philemon, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, 2 Timothy 1, Paul thanks God for the believers that he has had the privilege to minister to or minister with. Those true believers. And we could learn so much from this. Paul had no room in his heart for complaining. And by the way, he'll say later on, inspired by the Spirit, that we are to do all things without complaining and grumbling. We're not to be like the world. We are like we are lights holding out the truth of God. And so he's not complaining. He's thanking God. He's unchanged right now. He could say, start out saying, hey, this is so horrible. Please help me. Well, you know, I'm sure he wanted prayer and for that. But uh, here he's saying, hey, when I think of you all, um, I thank my God. I thank my God. And hopefully we can thank our God for one another as we remember and ponder what God has done in the lives of true believers around us. He says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Now the second part here in verse 4, he uses the word, it's translated prayer, but it's a different word for prayer. Often the word in, in uh, Greek is prosyuke, but here it's deasis, and it's a different word. It speaks of a petition. And so he says here, always offering entreaty with joy for my every entreaty for you all. So, hey, I'm brought to remembrance. I'm thanking God for you. And then I am entreating God for you. Always. You know, it's one thing to be thankful for them. It's another thing to actually be praying for them. And we see that's what the apostle does. And so when God brings believers to your mind, he should cause us to be thanking him for them, but also praying for them, praying for them. He's thanking God for God's work in these Philippians, and he's petitioning God on their behalf. And that should be a model for us. We should be praying for one another. We need prayer. We're, we're in a battle. We're in a good fight. We're in a good fight of faith, and we need prayer to, to endure, to press forward, to, to be faithful, to trust the Lord. Indeed, in uh, chapter 6 of Ephesians, you could just flip over and keep your fingers where we are in 1, but flip over to 6. Paul says, in the context of, by the way, the, 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 the armor of God, being strengthened in the Lord, putting on the full armor of God, and now it's all threaded together in the context of prayer, which reveals dependence, by the way. He says here, with all prayer, prosuke, and petition, that's our word, pray at all times in the Spirit. That means according to the Spirit's will, or in the context of walking by the Spirit, right? And with this in view... Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So pray for one another, pray for each other. And then he's saying, pray for me that I do what I should do in the Lord. I should be who I am in the Lord. I should speak as I ought to speak. And so Paul makes his entreaties to the Lord when they come into his remembrance. And so as we remember one another, as we remember what God has done through uh, each other, and with in terms of when we're together also, we should be praising him and thanking him. 
But notice, there's also joy. He says, I'll be happy you all with joy. With joy. It's one thing to pray about someone and be grieved, right? It's another thing to pray about them and be joyful. Praise the Lord what he has done in their lives. He's thankful and he's joyful. Now, joy is not happiness. Uh, happiness is circumstance-driven. Joy is what God brings to us when we are, are abiding in him, allowing his spirit to function in us. It, it's, a, it's, it's a byproduct of a right relationship with the Lord. And that happens when God's word is functioning right in us and we're thinking about our God and what he's done for us. You know, we saw in Nehemiah, Nehemiah shared with those there who were being oppressed by the, by the bad guys in a sense, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength, right? God's joy is going to strengthen you. It's going to uphold you. Psalm 1611, in thy presence is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. So when we're in his presence, when we're abiding in him, we're not allowing our stuff to clog our heads. Uh, when we're, we're seeing things from his perspective, focusing on Jesus, there's going to be joy. Uh, Psalm 511, but let those who take refuge in thee be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Ever sing for joy. Psalm 32, verse 1. You can turn to Psalm 32. We're going to see that joy is centered in an understanding and remembrance of your forgiveness in Christ. If you're thinking about the sins you've been forgiven of rather than everyone else's sins around you, you're thinking about the sins that you've been forgiven, you're going to have joy. You think about everybody sinning against you, you're not going to have any joy, okay? You think about what Christ has done for you, what Christ has done for you. Psalm 32, a psalm of David, a masculine. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. You're blessed. If you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are so blessed. Don't let your circumstances, your mind, Satan's temptation, tell you anything different. You are blessed if you have forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there's no deceit. And you look down to verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. So in the sense, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Because of what God has done for us, we should be joyful. And Paul is praying for them with exceeding joy. He's joyful. He's joyful when he thinks of them. Yes, there are things that grieve us, no doubt about that. We can grieve the Holy Spirit, we know that. But we should be joyful when we're thinking about what Christ has done for us and what he's done for those around us whom he loves, who he's saved by his grace. We see that God is our exceeding joy. Psalm 43, uh, second half of verse 4, he says, To God my exceeding joy, my exceeding joy, Psalm 71, verse 23, my lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to the Lord. Uh, Psalm 95, oh, come, let us sing for joy. You're not going to sing for joy if you are focused on yourself. I'll tell you that right now. If you are focused on yourself and your circumstances and what's happening to you, whatever self-focus, you are not going to be joyful. If you are focused on what Christ has done for you, a terrible, rotten sinner that's been saved by the grace of God, Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord. And then you start thanking him for other terrible, rotten sinners that have been saved by the grace of God, that God is changing. You're seeing that. They're not perfect. They're not complete yet. That's going to happen. We'll see that. But God is changing them. It should bring us to joy. It should bring us to joy. 
It's interesting, one pastor writes that joy and holiness are inseparable. Yeah, a holy Christian is able to rejoice even when passing through the deepest afflictions, but a believer who through unwatchfulness has permitted himself to fall into unholy ways loses immediately the joy of the Lord, which is the strength of those who walk in communion with him. We see that. And so then, the Apostle Paul is thankful, offering petitions with joy in his every petition for you all. Well, are you doing that? Are you doing that? We know joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And if you've lost your joy, I, I, I bet your, your eyes are focused on you or someone else and not Jesus. When your eyes get off the th- people that may be hurting you, whatever it might be, or suffering, the world, whatever it might be, the, the, all this junk, you get your eyes off of that and get them on Jesus Christ, and you're going to have joy. And Paul's going to share this reality so much so that he's going to command us in the Lord to do so. To rejoice in the Lord, chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. Rejoice. So i got to think about the Lord. i got to think about what he's done for me. i got to think about who he is. And that's going to cause joy, even in the midst of sorrow. So then, joy has its roots in a deep thankfulness for who God is, what he's done, and what he is doing, and what he will do. And it's uh, absent of a self-focus, as we will see. So then, uh, with that in mind, Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering petition with joy in my every prayer for you all. So often our petitions aren't with joy, by the way, because our petitions are out of grieving over somebody rather than praying that God will change him and, and we'll rejoice, right? Yes, exactly. Okay, so then, now notice he's going to share at this point back in our passage why he's so joyful in this context. And I've been alluding to this this entire time, by the way. But look at verse 5. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. From the first day. What was that first day? That first day was on the riverside with Lydia and where she got saved and her household. And she invited and had Paul and Silas to stay in her house. That first day where Paul and Silas were beaten uh, in the in the in the in the in and they were singing hymns and God opened the, the 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 jail up and the jailer came to faith. What must I do to be saved? That first day, all the way up to until now, we know that they had been supporting the apostle Paul. That they were very dear and very close. Were they perfect? No. Paul wouldn't need to write a letter. We wouldn't need scripture if we were perfect, right? But they were being conformed to the image of Christ. They're becoming more and more. And so he says here, I thank you and thank God for all presence of you and offering petitions as he shares in view of, or literally you could say because of, because of your participation, your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Well, how do I participate in the gospel after I'm saved? Well, it's the gospel doing its work in us. I'm saved. God's changed me and it's, and, and I am sharing in that. This term participation, a familiar word, koinonia, it means to share. It means to share. It speaks of having something in common. It speaks of fellowship. Uh, it speaks of partaking of something in common. And so because of your participation or fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, in view of this, so he's thinking of the good things, the things that God has done in them from the point of their salvation until now. 
it brings him joy. And I mentioned it. Lydia came to faith and gave her place to place to stay. And the Philippian jailer into faith, and he fed Paul. Uh, tremendous. And they supported him throughout, as we see right away and up to that point. Indeed, look at to what Paul says about the Philippians in chapter four, verse three. You can turn to chapter four, verse three. He says, indeed, true comrade, I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. Now, these women were having a little spat. And so he's saying, help them, help them get through this, get this right, together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And he commanded them to be harmonious in the Lord, to live in harmony, Udia and Syndicate. And so he's saying they shared in the struggle for the cause of the gospel. They struggled for the word of God going out that saves uh, sinners and the truth of God that builds up uh, the saved. They struggled. They were involved in that struggle. They participated in it from that first day of the, the first day of the gospel. They participated. So we see that even uh, chapter four, verse thirteen. We see they provided for him financially. Look at verse thirteen, chapter four. I can do all things through him or through Christ who strengthens me. Oh, I can't do anything. I'm failure. I'm not, blah, blah, blah. Pity party. No, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Whatever he calls me to do, if I trust him, he's going to do it through me. He's faithful. He strengthens me. He says here, in all things through Christ who strengthens me, nevertheless, you have done well to share my affliction. He's saying, hey, in Christ, I'll get by no matter if I'm rich or poor. If I've got a lot or a little, I've learned secret, right? He says, but nevertheless, you've done well in your support of me. And also it says, to share with me in my affliction. And you yourselves know, Philippians, that the first preaching of the gospel after I departed Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. Hey, they were on his heart. They cared for him. They shared financially to help him. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but that I seek the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I'm amply supplied. Having received it from Epaphroditus, what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. They supported him from day one, and they continued to love him and support him, and they shared in the gospel. They shared. And he says here, until now, or up to this point, it's been ongoing up to this point, from the first day until now. You know, some of you might think what you do for Christ is insignificant uh, as you share and you serve other brothers and sisters, as you pray for them and you encourage them and do what the Lord would have you do for them. Uh, but if you're participating in the work of God in the gospel, it is not invaluable. It is very valuable. Paul would share to the Corinthians, who certainly could have been discouraged, certainly with sin and stuff, but God was straightening that out. He says uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 56, the sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brother, because we got a victory, ultimately, glorification, right? Therefore, my beloved brother, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. 
And we know from uh, Hebrews that God is not unjust, that he's not going to reward us for what we've done in him, what we're doing for him and serving him. And these Philippians shared in the furtherance of the gospel by feeding, by housing, by serving, by giving of their finances. You know, never let uh, different ministries uh, force you into their mold. You do what God has called you to do. Uh, some ministries will make you feel guilty if you're not actively doing what they're exactly doing in the gospel or ministry or missions. Sometimes God calls you just to support that. Sometimes God calls you to participate and share in the context of prayer, whatever it might be. These uh, Macedonians were sharing, and they shared to help Paul in his affliction. They shared. So then, if someone were to think about your life, would they see you participating in the work of the gospel? Would they be brought to their knees in thankfulness for your participation? I hope so. So then Paul encourages the Philippians uh, that he's thankful for God's work in them. God's work in them. But now he's going to say, hey, God is going to complete this work. He's going to finish that work. He's been working in you from day one, and he's thankful for it. And now he's going to talk about it from this time on. He says, notice in verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He says, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and defense of the confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers of grace, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So we come to a very familiar and often quoted verse, and, and, for, and for good reason. It says, for I am confident of this very thing. And what's this very thing? He's going to talk about it. That he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He begins this verse with a, a perfect participle. What does that mean? It means it's a completed action in the past, but the results continue into the present. And so he says, being confident, I'm confident in the past, and I'm still confident. Having been confident and still confident, done deal. And he connects it to the main verb we see here. And so he's confident this very thing that God will do what? The one who began a good work will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Being convinced, that's the same word we see uh, that uh, Paul was fully convinced. We have a, of a we sing, a, you know, a songs, uh, you know, about it. You know, I've, I know whom I believed, right? We, we sing these songs, uh, and he is able, confident, convinced, fully persuaded. You could translate it that way. Fully persuaded. And what is he convinced of? Absolutely sure of this very thing. And what's this very thing? Namely, that he who began a good work in you, that's the Philippians, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. How encouraging. So thankful for your day one up to now, and God's going to complete that work. Isn't that great? That's what we need. We need to be encouraged because we can get discouraged because we are tempted. We live in a world of sin. Uh, we fall and yield to it at times. But God's good. He's conforming us to his image. He's going to complete the work. He says this very thing. I am completely persuaded in the past and, and continually habitually right now, still persuaded, that God had begun, first of all, God had begun a good work in them. And what's this good work? It is the work of salvation, 
Remember we saw in Acts chapter 16, when they came to faith, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. We know from Romans chapter 1, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We know that by his grace, we've been saved through faith, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. By his grace, we were saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And that good work God began in us. He began it by sharing the gospel with us, by convicting us of our sin. He began that work when we came to faith and trusted in him. Titus chapter 3, I love this because it shows where we were, the way we were. And we shouldn't forget that, but we should remember that so that we don't treat people wrongly who are in that way who haven't been saved yet because of what God has done for us. Titus 3, 3, for we were once ourselves foolish, ourselves disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice, envy, hateful, hating one another. We used to be that way. Titus chapter 3, 3. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. He saved us. That's when the good work began. Not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing, regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. We know earlier in Titus chapter 2, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And that same grace in the person of Christ by his spirit is instructing us now to deny ungodliness, worldly desires to live righteously uprightly in this present age. And notice, it's in you, it's personal. He who began the good work in you. We always kind of see it as a bad work because the good work exposes our bad stuff, right? He starts to reveal our sin in us, and we see it as not a good thing. It is a good thing. It's a good thing that God is sanctifying us. It is a good thing that he is convicting us and he is reproving us. It is a good work. It is a good work, and he has began it in you, and he will thus complete it. These are incredibly encouraging words. He began it. It starts with a change of heart and life. He saved our souls. So my question is you, has he begun the good work in you? Today can be the day of salvation. You recognize you're sinful. Recognize that God sent his son Jesus. He died for your sins and rose from the dead. He bore your sins in his body on the cross. Call out to Jesus. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And he will begin a good work in you. But he's not going to stop that good work. He's going to complete that good work. He's going to complete that good work. But there's some nuances in here I want you and us to see. So we have these incredibly encouraging words here. He says he began a good work and he will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now this has kind of bothered me at times. Perfect it until the day. What's the wording here? He's going to complete it until the day. What's he talking about here? I've always taken this very literally as he's going to finish the job. And that is true. And that is in this passage. But I think there's more to it than that. I think there's more to it and it's more encouraging than just the job being finished. Because I think he's going to point to that period from now until the day he comes when that job is totally done. He's working on it. He's doing it. You see, it's so easy to be discouraged when we yield to our flesh. Paul would say in Romans 7:24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And the answer is, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
And the answer comes in Romans chapter 8. Hey, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Hey, you have a new operating principle. You have the Spirit of God in life operating in you. And you're going to be, if you're His child, if His Spirit is in you, you're going to be glorified. If you suffer with Him, you're going to be glorified. And He's working everything together for good. And nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Tremendous reality. And so Paul says here, For I am confident of this very thing, having been confident and still confident, that he who began a good work will perfect it in, in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And let me remind you this. He didn't say good work on you, in you. It's on the inside. It's an internal work. That's where it begins. It begins in the heart. And he's begun it, and he's going to complete it, as we'll see. Now, this term perfect uh, speaks of uh, performing something to completion, uh, successfully completing, bringing an action to an end. But it has this idea here of performing, doing to a completion. It's not just the completion, it's the doing unto completion. And that's what really struck me as I studied this. It's not simply he's going to finish the job and that's it. He's going to do the job until it's finished. He's going to do it. And that's going to happen up to or until the day of Christ Jesus. And this kind of thing, you think of some people take this verse, okay, well, okay, since he's going to complete it, you know, you think of it just seriously as that alone. Well, if I'm a Christian, I just mess up here and here and here, and I just sin it up. It doesn't matter. He's going to complete it when Jesus comes, because when I see him, I'll be like him. Well, should we think that way? May it never be. Romans chapter 6. We should never think that way. So here, this work that he began, he's going to perform all the way up to the day of Christ Jesus, and it's going to be completed. It's going to be performed to its end, which implies the process also with the completion when Christ comes. And that's the encouraging part. Yes, he's going to complete it, but he's actually working on us now. He's actually performing it in us Now, this word translated until could be translated as far as or up to. And that's what always threw me off. He's going to complete it up to this. Well, that means he's doing it up to this point, right? And that's certainly where the the finale of our glorification will be. Now, he says it's going to continue this work of salvation and complete it up up to the day of Christ Jesus. Well, what's the day of Christ Jesus? Well, the point here, first of all, is God is not going to stop his good work until you're glorified. He's going to keep working on you all the way up to your glorification. And he's going to complete it in glorification. And that's where this verse takes on more encouragement. Not simply, in the end run, I will finally be like Jesus. No, he's working on me now. And I'm on my way. And I press forward to that upward goal. Tremendous, wonderful verse. And so here he says, up to or as far as the day of Christ. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean? What is the day of Christ Jesus? Well, Paul used this term three times in Philippians. It's similar to the term, uh, there's a similar term, the day of the Lord. But a question is, is it what he's talking about here? There is what we see in Scripture, the, quote, day of the Lord, in which Scripture speaks of a time in which God pours out his eschatological or his end times judgment upon earth and saves Israel. And that's after the worst tribulation the world has ever seen, the Lord saves Israel. That's the day of the Lord, okay? And we, if we're believers, we're not going to be there. God's going to take us. We're going to be with him, uh, okay? Is that what this is talking about? 
I believe no. I believe it's speaking of the day of Christ Jesus in light of the day in relationship to believers. Okay, we know in First Corinthians, excuse me, First Thessalonians four and First Corinthians fifteen, that there is a point where God will come. Jesus Christ will come. We will meet Him in the air. We will be changed. We will be glorified. That's the day of Christ Jesus for us. Right. Uh, turn to First Thessalonians chapter four. It's very clear, and I don't know how people can get any other interpretation. Uh, they just have to twist scripture and 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 uh, try to manipulate people. Basically, I think there's no other interpretation than this. We know from John 14 that Jesus said, "Hey, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and where I am, I'm going to bring you with me." That doesn't say I'm not. I mean, he's not preparing it here. He's preparing it there, and we're going to go there, right? First Thessalonians 4:13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who have fallen asleep. They they were waiting for Jesus in imminently coming. They were focused on him, and he hadn't come yet. And some of the brothers and sisters died. What's happened to them? Well, he says here that you may not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, that's those who perished in Jesus, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of, an arch- of the archangel, the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And, those, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. That's where we get our word rapturo. That's the, uh, it's harpazo. It means forcibly grasped. Then the Latin words where we get the word rapture from, basically. And caught, forcibly grasped, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. Hey, that's not here. That's in the clouds, by the way. We're not going up and coming right back down. We're going up and we're staying up. Okay? And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. 1 Corinthians 15.51, I'll read it for you. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In this moment, in the twinkling, in a moment, the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trump will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the, this perishable must put on the imperishable, this mortality, mortal must put on immortality. So then, when Christ comes, that work will be completed. We know that, right? We know from 1 John 4 that we will see him, 1 John 3, when he appears, we know that we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. That work will be completed for every true believer when we see Jesus. We're going to be glorified. But I think, as I mentioned before, this passage also reveals that there's the process up to that point. He says here, uh, he began a good work in you. He's going to complete it until, up to. He's going to perform it to completion. You could say it that way. Perform it to completion up to the day of Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. We look forward to that day where we meet Christ face to face. We anxiously await a Savior. Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, from which we anxiously wait a savior. That's for our ultimate glorification. We've been saved. We're being saved. We will be saved. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of this humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Amen. By the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. What a wonderful, wonderful truth. He's going to complete the work that he has 
begun. But that completion speaks of the process from now till completion. He's going to successfully complete it up to that day. He's going to keep working on us until the day that we are glorified. Just think about it. We know from Hebrews chapter 12 that if you're a true believer, God's not going to stop disciplining you. We saw even working on the Corinthians who had greatly sinned that he disciplined someone to death. Now, I don't like that day of completion, okay? I want to, I want to not be disciplined that way, but, uh, I want to become more like Christ. So then, he is not justifying continual habitual sin in Christians because he'll complete the work. No way. He's encouraging believers that, hey, first of all, I'm thankful from day one to now, your petition is gospel, and I'm so thankful and confident that he will complete this work. He'll perform it up to that day when it's complete. He's going to perform it up to that day. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Perform and complete that good work in us. And that needs to be an encouragement to us. It should be an encouragement to us. Because when we get our eyes on the stuff, we get discouraged. Get our eyes back on Jesus and what he's going to do. And we need to have that confidence that he is working in me right now, that good work through the circumstances that I am experiencing. And it's going to end in this ultimate completion. So why this confidence? Back in our passage, he says in verse 7, after saying this tremendous statement, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. He's saying, or you could literally translate, it, just as it is only the right to think in behalf of you all. It's the right thing to do to think of you this way. It's the right thing to be confident that he who began this good work will perform it and complete it up to the day of Christ Jesus. Until that day. He's not saying, hey, i got a feeling you're going to be good to go with the Lord. He's confident the Lord is going to do this. And the reason is, is because of their exemplification of their true relationship through the gospel with Jesus Christ. He says, since both my imprisonment and defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me, soon koinonius, sharing with you actually are evidencing you're partaking of God's grace through your sharing with me in these circumstances. So I'm confident God's going to complete the work. You're the real deal. You're true believers. You're partaking of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. You're the real deal, and it's evident. It's evident. Since my imprisonment in the defense and confirmation or legal verification of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace. So if you have partaken of grace and it is manifest in your life, not perfectly, but it's manifest in your life, you can be confident, as Paul is, that God will continue to perform that work all the way up to Christ, the day of Christ Jesus. You will be complete. He will complete the work. He will complete the work. He says, For God is my witness, verse 8, how long I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Hey, I long for you because we are sharing in God's grace, and it's confirmed in your actions. And that's the change of heart and the way we should be thinking about one another, right? Each one of you, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, we have a tremendous commonality. We co-share in this tremendous reality, and it should manifest in the way we treat one another and the way we come about and respond to the afflictions in the context of ministry, right? They came alongside the Apostle Paul. 
And so Paul says with this affection of Christ, the term, the, the, the inner organs, the bowels, genuine internal affection, Paul witnesses, is God, calls upon God as witness, and he longs for them with this affection. So then they were truly saved, co-partakers of the grace of God with Paul, as evidenced by their sharing in the sufferings of Paul for the gospel. They shared in the sufferings. And Paul is witness and how much he longs, and God is Paul's witness, how much he longs for them with Christ's affliction, affection, not affliction. So then, what a wonderful view into the heart of the Apostle Paul towards believers. Do we? Do you see your brothers and sisters that way? We need to start seeing each other, one another that way. That God is going to complete that work. We are co-sharers in grace. He is working through these things. We're on our way to glory together. Tremendous. We are we suffering now for the glories to follow. He is performing that work. He's going to continue to perform that work to completion. He's not giving up on you. He's going to continue to perform that work in you and I. What an encouraging portion of Scripture. So then we've seen Paul is thankful and joyful for God's work and confident he will continue to perform it unto completion. You know, if you give someone a task and they're doing it, you may have a confidence they're going to finish it, or you may not. God's going to finish the job. He's going to complete it. He's working on it now. He's working on you and I, and he is going to complete it. If you're discouraged, get your eyes on Jesus. God has begun a good work, and he's going to complete it. He'll keep performing it until it's done, and you'll be glorified. He's doing a good work, a good work in you and in I. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your good work that you've brought about through your son Jesus in those of us who have been saved. And thank you that you're still working in us and you will complete that work uh, when your son comes. You're going to perform it to completion, Lord God. Thank you. You're not going to give up on us. You're going to continue to work in us for your glory, this glorious work of salvation. And Lord, I pray that we would remember that it is God, you, it is you who is at work in us to both will and work for your good pleasure, Lord God. May we not thwart that work through selfishness, self-focus, whatever it might be. May we respond quickly when you convict us. May we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and may we trust in him completely. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.